you from the congregation of Israel and brought you near to himself to perform the work of the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the congregation to minister to them. He has brought you near, you and all your fellow Levites, but you are seeking the priesthood as well. Therefore, it is you and all your followers who have conspired against the Lord. As for Aaron, who is, that, who is he that you should grumble against him? Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, We will not come. It is, not, is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? Must you also appoint yourself as ruler over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you gouge out the eyes of these men? No, we will not come. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have, I have not taken one donkey from them or mistreated a single one of them. And Moses said to Korah, You and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. Each man is to take his censer, place, it in, place incense in it, and present it before the Lord. 250 censers. You and Aaron are to present your censers as well. So each man took his censer, put fire and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered his whole assembly against them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole congregation. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this congregation so that I may consume them in an instant. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and said, O oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the whole congregation? Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the congregation to move away from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of the Israel followed him. And he warned the congregation, move away now from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything that belongs to them, or you will be swept away because of their sins. So they moved away from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Meanwhile, Dathan and Abiram had come out and stood at the entrances to their tents with their wives and children and infants. Then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things, for it was not my own doing. If these men die a natural death, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something unprecedented, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them and all that belongs to them so that they go down alive to Sheol, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as Moses had finished saying all this, the ground beneath them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households, all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into Sheol with all they owned. The earth closed over them, and they vanished from the assembly. At their cries, all the people of Israel who were around them fled, saying, The earth may swallow us too. And fire came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, to remove the censers from the plains and to scatter the coals far away because the censers are holy. As for the censers of those who sinned at the cost of their own lives, hammer them into sheets to overlay the altar, for these were presented before the Lord, and so have become holy. They will serve as a sign to the Israelites. 
So Eleazar, the priest, took the bronze censers brought by those who had been burnt up and had them hammered out to the overlay, to overlay the altar, just as the Lord commanded through Moses. This was to be a reminder to the Israelites that no outsider who was not a descendant of Aaron should approach to offer incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his followers. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you first and foremost for the reminder that you are holy, holy, holy. Father, that reminder is needed and necessary for us to appreciate your goodness and your mercy extended to us. And we thank you that you did extend that mercy to us because, Lord, we are Korah. Mm. We are those who rebelled. Mm. And you, um, Lord, you extended that mercy to us through your son who took on that punishment for us. Lord, we thank you that he did die for us, that he did descend into hell, and he rose on the third day on our behalf. So we thank you, Lord, that we stand as those who have been presented to the Lord as holy. We are no longer outsiders. Thank you for that welcome, Lord, and thank you for this reminder in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jackie. The perfect Mother's Day text to uh, <laughs> preach on. You know how many times have you wanted to smite your children with fire? So you can relate to the heart of God here, never. <laughs> okay, maybe that's a Father's Day sermon. <laughs> All right, so the battle for your heart is only won by Jesus. There is a battle that rages for control of who you are, for your very soul, and the only winner can be Jesus. The Lord keep us humble and curious. That's a, I always finish prayer when I start coaching sessions with church planters, that the Lord would make us and keep us humble and curious. And many of you know I have the privilege to coach some church planners. It's just a few so far as I've started this journey with Redeemer City to City. And that's how I always pray to begin our sessions as we talk about how we can improve our leadership, how we can rely on the Lord for what we've been called to do, to be humble and curious as we follow Jesus and lead his people. And I've never met a pastor yet who relayed to me that life and ministry unfolded exactly as they expected, exactly as they had planned. Every leader, no matter how long you've, you've been a pastor or led ministry at all, you learn very quickly that things in the kingdom always unfold in ways that we don't expect. And sometimes they unfold by the work of those that we least expect have a part in our story. So given that reality, being humble and curious is the best posture. That's what I endeavor to do as I lead you all on our journey to Jesus, humble enough to know that we are not in fact God, right? And we're not even that great in ourselves, regardless of what our, you know, our resumes say, but we're so we stay humble, but we also want to be curious to look for what God is up to in our midst, that we would not miss the places where the bushes are burning or where the Lord is stirring a work. We don't want to ignore the truth in the signs that he gives us along the way. And 
this, not surprisingly, is not, in fact, just for pastors, right? Because it's for all of us. Our stories, usually, as our lives unfold, don't go as planned. And with eyes healthy enough to see and ears enough to actually think about it, we often realize they've unfolded in ways that were better than we planned. Because somebody else was at the helm and it is training us to trust the Lord, to trust his truth and the signs that he gives us as reminders along the way in this life of faith. And how we see the story of our lives unfolding tells a lot about the health of our hearts. And when I talk about heart, I mean more than just the organ that pumps blood throughout your body. I mean your soul, the totality of who you are, the center of who you are, and it's the place of battle in our lives. Given just the human inclinations, our fleshly inclinations and desires that regularly attempt to lead us away from God, there is a war that rages for territory for us, for who we are. And hearts made healthy pursue truth and life. Hearts ruled instead by idols always stumble towards death. And we see some of this battle playing out beyond the chest in the wilderness among God's people here in Numbers 16. And in our text, this piece of the story of God's people that are journeying toward the promise that he's given them. We have what is just an uprising. It's like a a political coup against God's plan and purpose. And the fruit or result of that rebellion of hearts that are neither humble or curious are laid out before us in this text. It doesn't end well for the rebels, does it? It's a story of poison and hope. There, There is hope there. You may have to hold on a minute to get to it. But they both provide signs that are calling us to something better. And this text follows uh, right after a foundational warning in chapter 15. If you remember, God told Israel to put blue tassels on the hem of their garments as a reminder of the law and how they were to live. And then he said this, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. It's a strong word, but that's the reality of the inclination of our hearts, not regenerated by God yet, but still longing for other things. So we start with the poison of the heart that we see in the text today. And so our first image is bad, right? How do you draw a skull? Right. Is that a dead person? Is that poison? You got it? It's in there. Noxious gas. Noxious gas, okay. The Schrader men know all about noxious gas. That was a joke. Why? You're just like, oh, too, too real. Sorry, yes, we're gassy people. We got it from my mother. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I love you. Thank you, Beth, for that look of disapproval yeah (laughs) she'd probably love it okay poison speaking of gas poison of the heart right 
As we've studied numbers, I keep reading these stories, and maybe you've done this too, as you hear them or if you're reading ahead, and I, we look at these stories, and I just wonder when they are going to actually catch on. Like, when is the people, are they going to see what they've been doing? Because over and over again, Israel is invited and even commanded, essentially, to trust God, to trust Yahweh, the one who rescued them from slavery and is bringing them to this place. And they're just called to not rebel against him. Just like, I've rescued you, so now live this way. Follow this order that I'm giving you. He has redeemed them out of slavery, and yet they forget it. And they act as if they haven't been listening and paying attention the whole time. It's, it's like being a mother with children, right? And we're in the thick right now in Numbers chapter 16 of a section that is on rebellion. And this week, Lawrence, preparing for worship, he's like, when is this rebellion going to end? And uh, I didn't say this to him, but I could. When Jesus returns, Right? It's going to take us all the way through chapter 19, just these continued acts of rebellion. Rebellion against God's timing in the story, against the leaders that he's put in place, against the way that they are supposed to worship. And each time there's been correction and then a call to live differently, to remember the law, go back with the tassels, live in the way that I have told you, Yahweh says. And all of the reminders come, yet they still sip the poison that kills and so we see these characters in the story. There's Korah. He's a Kohathite who's part of the Levitical tribe. And his clan specifically is responsible for moving the sacred objects from the tabernacle. So when the camp moves, his family goes in, wraps up these sacred... No? They wrap it. These guys carry it. Okay, so they don't get in touch. See, you've got to have dairy. He loves to get my Israel history right. So they move. They're the movers, right? They're, they're two guys with the truck. They come, and it's actually just a wagon. I don't want to... Okay. So they have a very important job, though. They're to take the sacred objects that have been wrapped by someone else and move them with the tabernacle. And then other people in the story, there's Dathan, Abraham, or Abraham, I can't say it right, and On is mentioned just once. But they're Reubenites, so they're of the tribe of Reuben that partner with Korah in his rebellion. And the, the order of the camp is important here because they're on the south side of the camp. So this is the Southsiders essentially raising up in rebellion. And it's just proof that proximity shares poison. I mean, somebody else is imbibing in poison and you're around them. They try to share it with you. And we have the result of that happening here in number 16. And there is seemingly just a dissatisfaction with their roles and with the authority of the camp. And it leads to rebellion where Korah will say, Moses and Aaron, you've just gone too far. And these guys then took men and rose up. So there is a huge group. And they rise up before Moses with a number of people of Israel and 250 chiefs among the congregation. Influential men. And it's a significant portion. This is like at least two elders rising up against us, you know. And don't worry, they've been vetted. They're not going to do that. Unless they need to. They will if they need to. And we hear it. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And so... 
this section for us can best be understood as containing essentially two interlinked rebellions. And the first is clearly about the priesthood, and that concerns Korah and his family. And he addresses Moses in the way. And then the second is more generally about leadership concerns that Dathan and Abraham have um, with Moses. And so there's a priestly challenge and a political challenge, and both of them, we, we need to see this, are clinging to half-truths as the reason for rebellion. They're clinging to things that are kind of true, but not fully true, as their motivation for rejecting God's order and God's way. And they even say here in Korah, Korah's talk to, uh, against Aaron, all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and Yahweh is among them. So here's the story. Korah wants to be a priest. He wants to be the one to wrap up the objects he's been carrying. He wants to be the one to bring in the sacrifice, perform the rituals that is worship for Israel. And where Aaron and his sons were set aside for priestly ministry, worship before the altar in that tent of meeting, these sacrifices, all the other Levites had the responsibilities of moving and caring for the tabernacle and its contents. And so seemingly, they're just not that important or not that glamorous of a job in Israel here. And his argument has some truth, right? You, you probably read and be like, well, he, he does have a point, right? Because Israel is meant to be a holy nation, all of them are meant to be set aside for God. But that being true doesn't override the order that God has established. And yes, Yahweh is among the people, but he is the one that gets to call the shots, not the people. One writer says their argument here is classic case of a false conclusion constructed on a true premise. It was certainly true that the whole community of Israel was holy. God had called them to be a kingdom of priests. And it was also true that the Lord was with the Israelites and he had promised to dwell in their midst and to be their God. But the conclusion leads them to reject God's way. And I'm struck, and I don't want you to miss it. This is from a place of privilege, too. Korah is not like a little guy outsider that is being passed over. He is subverting authority from a place of influence in the camp. And I just wonder, like, how long did he stir up this kind of thinking among the camp, among his neighbors, where the, the tribe of Reuben was camping near them. And he's challenging the order of the camp. But he's not at all a little guy. Because Moses will say to him, you have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? And one commentator said, it was like, uh, remember the book Animal Farm, George Orwell's book? Do you, do you read that anymore? Did you have to read that, Iona? I read that in, I think, seventh grade. And evidently now we're not worried about tyrants. We've maybe become them. You different books that talk about tyrants? My kids still read it. Okay, good. See? Homeschool, one. The Outsiders. 
completely different story, but a great book. Better movie. Okay. Yeah, you should all call me John Boy, but that's a whole other story. So if you know the story of Animal Farm, right? They throw out the humans and the pigs... They like start this revolution about everybody being equal, right? And it's four legs good, but it becomes two legs better. And the pigs want everyone to be equal with some themselves being just more equal than the other. And that's what is happening with Cora and his crew here. It's like, we already have the privilege, but we want to have just a little bit more privilege than we've experienced, than everybody else has. But it's not really a challenge to Moses as leader or Aaron as priest that is at play here. And in verse 11 we see, Therefore it is against Yahweh that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? He's, he's just another servant that the Lord has set apart to do the work, to bring glory to God. But it is against God that you are rebelling. And the Reubenites, they wouldn't even face Moses as they too fall for the half-truths that poison their hearts. And, and we see it. And Moses sent to call them. And they said, we will not come up. And it is a small thing. This is their rejection of Moses. It is a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? Like, will you try to make them blind to not see what's happening? We will not come up to you. We will not respect your God-given authority to lead the people. We will reject you. And Moses isn't the type of leader that they want. Right? They're probably being pragmatic. They're like, well, we didn't get all what we wanted, so we're going to go somewhere else or find a different leader or become leaders ourselves that cater to our needs a little bit better. And sure, there was abundance in Egypt, but you have to remember it was not their abundance. It was their slavery. And, and yeah, you, you haven't been brought into the promised land, land yet, but we know why. Because of your disobedience to go into the land. And the, the promise is still coming. It's not Moses who kept you. It was because of the repercussions of your sin that you're delayed in experiencing the promised land. So half-truths that they're clinging to, that is poisoning their heart and getting them to despise God. When Korah wants to rewrite the script on how to worship, Dathan and the boys reject authority, and they both are swallowing half-truths as poison and inciting the people to despise Yahweh. And sadly, that's the way it's always been. It's always little half-truths that are held out, little Half lies that are put before humanity to get us to reject God. We see it in the garden with our first mother. Oh, there, a Mother's Day reference. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, he didn't say that. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tr fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
The woman sees the fruit of the tree and it's a delight to her eyes. And that which the people then are warned not to whore after. And there's disobedience in that moment. But it's not only a very old story from the beginning of humanity, it's our experience. And it appears in the New Testament, too, as Paul tells Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I don't know how how many times you guys are, are relatively really good. So this is not you, but I don't know how many times in being a pastor for more than almost 15 years now that people will send me clips to things like here's here look at what this pastor says i don't even have to listen to it because i know it's proving the point that we've just argued about with that person like i found somebody else that says what i want to say not what you're saying from scripture like that happens over and over again so it's not just for timothy's experience in pastoring ephesus it's for all of us I probably do it in ways too. I have little itches and I try to find scripture to match it. I was at a dinner last night and one young lady said, well, you know, you know, Paul says that Christians don't run. And so we shouldn't be, and she was joking mostly, but she was trying to find a text that well, Paul says we don't run like other people. It's not about exercise, but her ears itched a little bit for that. And she might come here, so I'm not going to tell you who that is. But here's what we have to understand. Novel takes on scripture that prompt following after selfish hearts, eyes, or passions are usually always wrong. It's just the truth of it. And we hear it, right? I'm created by God, so God wants me to follow these desires. And it ignores the fall and God's call to be something better, something truer. We hear Jesus was a man that lived as a good example for us. We just have to be kind to everyone. And it ignores that Jesus is God. He is king of the universe who will judge the living and the dead. Or this, I love that we hear it all the time. God just wants me to be happy. It ignores that God wants you to be holy and happy in him. And here, Israel, God's blessed people, are called to live in his way, under his rule, and they will be blessed. That's the covenantal promise. They are to sacrifice self for his purpose and understand that that is where real life is found. But they prefer over and over again poison to promise. And Moses says, well, let's let God decide. And Korah and 250 others burn incense before the Lord along with Aaron, and we will see who God chooses to be his priest. And then God says, and we don't like these texts about God, but it's who he's revealed himself to be. And he says to Moses and Aaron, watch out. Get away from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. And he, Moses, spoke to the congregation saying, Depart, please. Oh, pleading with the people. Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all of their sins. The truth is that sin spreads. It infects. 
So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abraham. And Dathan and Abraham came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. Here's the mothers in the story. And Moses says that if these guys live and die a natural death, then they are right. What they have clung to and declared is right. But if God does something new, then their rebellion is wrong. And as soon as he says it, the ground opens up and swallows them. And they went down alive to Sheol. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men, the chiefs of the people of God and Korah. And only Aaron is left. God decided it. The conclusion of the passage shows us clearly that falsehood of these charges against Moses and Aaron. The half-truths were not fully true. It made them despise God. Despising the Lord leads to rebellion, which leads to death. And half-truths used as poisons will ruin you. So don't consume the poison. But in this story, there's also hope for our heart. And Aaron's told me how to draw this one. So we'll see. Uh, do I start with the cross or the... Is that good? Does that match? Match your vision. Here's his vision. <laughs> we match it. I, I take recommendations for the, the points in the pictures, right? Hope for the heart. Now, I know this does not seem, this text, as you read it, it does not seem like it's a hopeful text. But as usual, God always does this. He's, he's faithful in this. There are hints at God's redeeming love in this story. Because there's a mediator that intercedes on behalf of the people. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among the congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And wrath falls on those that rebelled, and because Moses intervenes, he can warn away the people, and he ends up saving them. As the whole crowd, the congregation is not swallowed up here, but just those that began the rebellion. He's essentially saying to them, don't get caught up in the sins of others. Stick with the whole truth, with the creator of truth, and run from this rebellion. Run from this poison. And the people can only hear that because of this mediator. It's come between them and God, and they are given a sign to remember. All the bronze censers that held the incense are made into plates for the altar, and even some descendants of Korah were freed from the hooks. Numbers 26 will tell us that the sons of Korah were not swallowed up, and they end up leading worship in Israel. They write psalms and sing to the Lord. So, how is this hope then for us? When We have itching ears when we are dissatisfied with the story of our lives and how it's playing out. When we want a different role than the one God has given us. How does this give us hope on Mother's Day when we're tired from taking care of kids and putting up with husbands? 
When the world's song of just follow your heart sounds so sweet to our ears. Take hope in the midst of all that because we know that there is a mediator that is greater than Moses. Jesus said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas, the doubter, says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also from now on. You do know him and have seen him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other plan. There is only one way through the wilderness into promise. One truth to cling to. And like Israel, we're just called to live in response to that reality. And then Jesus tells us and his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Because our eyes and hearts and passions that we are prone to whore after are not the answer for humanity, but it is Christ that is the answer for humanity. What he calls us to, how he renews us. And as Israel is called to set aside the inclinations of that poison heart, we're called to deny self, deny half-truths, live in this way, and do so with his power that he gives us. Because, friends, you have to understand, every other way is loss. If Christ doesn't win the battle for your heart, your heart is lost. Because Jesus takes on our eyes, our hearts, our souls, and says that by my finished work on the cross, and through my spirit in you, I am changing all of your desires. I am writing your story and working it out for my glory. You will have new longings, new rest, something to actually that is worth living for. And Jesus is our sign. Ever before us in his word, in his community, and in his world. that There is forgiveness for those who once despised the Lord. There is life to be found in him. So friends, let him win your heart. All of it. And that's the challenge of our day. And I think it's a challenge of all days. But it's unique now. It comes up a lot with the Christian sexual ethic and how we respond to that. But I want God to be happy about me, but I want him to be happy about me, letting me do everything that I feel like I should do. I want to write the script of what the best life looks like, and I just want him to be over here and receive me when it's all done. It's like the guys you always see at the beach that got the tattoos that say, only God will judge me. And every time I see those young men, I want to watch. He's like, brother, you have no idea how true that is. But I don't think it means what you think it means. When things don't go as expected, when our plans miss the mark, when we are not sure we are walking in the right direction through the wilderness, we have an answer to hold on to. One old Presbyterian minister says the cross is also the answer to our doubts about the Lord's presence and effectiveness in our lives. Like Dathan and Abraham, 
we may sometimes question the circumstances in which we find ourselves. We perhaps expected greater successes or more comfortable circumstances. And so we ask, what is life doing with me? Why is my situation so much worse than it used to be or than I think it ought to be? These questions are not wrong in themselves, but they can easily spill over into an angry resentment toward God and, and those that he has set in authority over us. And the reality is that what, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, God is neither dead nor absent. Life is not going or doing anything with us. It is the sovereign God who is doing something with us. And the cross reminds us that whatever the difficulties of our present situation, God does care about us. Whatever people may have done to us, God is still in control. And his heart is for us. So in light of the cross... We may be confident now that in the end, we will indeed, uh, he will bring us to the place that he's prepared for us, where all of our disappointments will be over. We won't even remember them in that moment as we're transformed by the joy of his presence. And it's where we're headed. It's promised. It's sure. The battle for your heart is only won by Jesus. And because he loves us, we can come humble and curious before him. So friends, cling to the truth. See Jesus in his word. Do not settle for half-truths. And get yourself some friends who will tell you when you do. And wrestle. You're meant to wrestle with what is communicated in scripture. But let God win. Know that he is right. And then run to Jesus for forgiveness, for purpose, for passion, and ask him to help you see he truly is better. We close with the prayer of the psalmist who recounts the stories of Israel in the wilderness. He says, many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenants and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. We pray with me. Good and holy God, we recognize our own image in Korah and this rebellion. We know our own hearts and uh, the likelihood that we would run after half-truths that would make us feel a little better in the moment but completely miss the mark of what you are calling us to. Lord, because of that, we repent. We declare today that we turn from that and we want to cling to your truth and live in response to that. Lord, we desire to do that as a humble and curious people. We may not have all the answers worked out perfectly, but we know only you do. And we want to run after you, Jesus. Help us to see that you truly are worth it all.
be glorified in us as we do. In Jesus' name, amen.